0: Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green people! No, I am the father.
1: in the box yo Hello, and welcome to another episode of Slate's Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic. Today, I am joined by Slate's senior editor, Sam Adams. Hello, Sam. Hello, Dana. And you have joined me to talk about The Batman, the new installment or reboot. I don't know what we're going to call it. We'll talk about what place it occupies in the Batman continuity, but the new film directed by Matt Reeves and starring for the first time Robert Pattinson as the Batman, complete with definite article.
0: No imitation Batmans need apply.
1: I was actually going to ask if you know, is this a comic book tradition that The Batman is sometimes called The Batman? Is is there some um, particular series of DC Comics that uses the the, or where's the the from?
0: I mean, I think the the has been present In the comics, if not the title for a while, I think it might even be in the first, you know, Batman movie where it's referred to as being the Batman. But in this case, I think it's more a function of this kind of endless sequel reboot culture that they want a movie with as direct a reference to the underlying IP as possible. The title Batman is already taken, so they just, instead of just doing another Batman, like another Scream, they just added a the at the beginning.
1: Yeah, now that you, you mentioned it, I think once in a while in the Nolan movies, Christian Bale's Batman gets a the, right? I mean, it, it sort of, it, especially when people are talking about him as this strange phenomenon unfolding in the city that we're just starting to understand. But yeah, this movie makes it proprietary.
0: I mean, all these movies have a certain kind of underlying discomfort with the comic book culture they come out of. And it's always interesting if they're, you know, do we actually refer to the Riddler as the Riddler? Do we call Catwoman, Catwoman or the Cat or Selena or something? So I, I feel like the the Batman, and this is sort of a way of just having a little, you know, plausible deniability, uh, prophylactic insulation from just him saying, I'm Batman.
1: And interestingly, Catwoman, who is played by Zoe Kravitz in this movie and is a major character, I don't think gets called Catwoman very much. She once identifies herself as a cat, but she's she's not especially feline compared to somebody like the Michelle Pfeiffer of the Tim Burton movies. I even noticed that her costume is just this sort of ski cap with some very soft peaks in it <laughs> rather than big pointy cat ears, you know? So she is just being um, presented as a suggestion of the Catwoman. Whereas this is a pretty full on Batman, even to the extent that he seems to wear his mask when he's hanging out at home most of the time.
0: Right. This is, yeah, this is very, this is not the Bruce Wayne. This is, Very much the Batman, this movie.
1: So I have a lot to ask about um, what this movie is trying to do with the character and with the property. But first, let me start with my usual spoiler special question, which is just, did you like it? And would you send your friends to see all three hours? Yes, it is within four minutes of being three hours long of the Batman.
0: I liked it. I think that's the correct word for it. I certainly did not love it. I think it is a pretty one note movie, especially for a movie that is three hours long. But I think it's a good note. Uh, There's a lot of... Interesting little things about it. So even though I didn't love it, I don't think it does anything sort of massively new with the character. Um, I certainly know that it's sort of a significant shift in the culture or anything. I enjoyed Robert Pattinson, B, emo Batman, and I would uh, recommend it to anyone who is interested in same.
1: And when you say it it strikes one note, is that the note you mean? Just that we have a a younger and more emo Batman than we're used to seeing?
0: Yes. I mean, it's it's very sort of, you know, dark and gritty and moody and doesn't really liven that up or vary from that a whole lot. So it, it just kind of starts in one direction and keeps going that way for 176 minutes.
1: I agree with you. And given its monomaniacal focus and its unbelievable duration, like this truly outlandishly long running time, I'm, really surprised at myself that I had as much patience with this movie as I did. You know, I really went into it thinking that I, it was going to be very hard to sit through and that my review was going to be an exhausted, you know, catalog of how exhausting it is to be, you know, exposed to this same IP again and again and asked to care about this character in all of these different iterations and can Batman just go away for a while so we can miss him, you know, was was my take going in. And then I kind of enjoyed it. And I actually think that this could be a promising new Iteration for the character and the property. Of course, if you're someone who doesn't care at all about the character or the property, I think it may not reinvent the wheel for you in that way. But yeah, I I felt an affection and a sympathy for what Reeves and Pattinson were trying to do with a character that I've always found particularly uninteresting, Batman, because, you know, he is so obsessively focused on crime fighting and he's so dark and he's so masked. And, you know, it's always, there's this sort of edgelord quality to the Batman character. But I think they got around that in a, in a kind of interesting way. And I want to get into um to what that is and whether you agree.
0: At the very least, I can say, I feel like this is a movie made by people with kind of a genuine attachment to the character and the, you know, quote unquote issues that he brings up. And this is not just a kind of movie churned out so that, you know, DC and Warner Brothers can hold on to the rights to the character for a few more years. This does not feel like just it was uh, – this does not feel like a movie that was just kind of cranked out of the IP pasta machine or something. This does feel like a real attempt at something. And the extent that that something is not super interesting to me takes some of the edge off that. But uh, But – You know, I think it is at the very least kind of worthy.
1: Yeah, it means a lot that a movie, like you say, is just is sincerely intended by its creators and is not cynically cranked out. And I think we we would both agree on that about this one. Something else that I like about it and that is somewhat unusual about it is that it's not an origin story, right? I mean, it's sort of enough already with hearing about Bruce Wayne's parents being murdered in an alleyway. We've all seen it happen in so many movies, including movies like The Joker that aren't even really about Batman, right? That's just this primal scene, a little bit like um, Peter Parker's uncle getting killed in Spider-Man that we've seen so many times it's lost its emotional power. But this movie doesn't do it. It starts at a different point in his the character's trajectory when he's two years into his crime fighting career, right? So he's supposed to be, I suppose in in real life, he's supposed to be maybe a little younger than Robert Pattinson actually is. He seems like he's supposed to be in his mid 20s somewhere. And there's almost a coming of age quality to the way that this story is told. You know, it's really about the Batman trying to figure out who he's going to be as a crime fighter and how he's going to achieve work-life balance between his, his nocturnal and his daytime selves.
0: Right. Christopher Nolan's trilogy was sort of famously inspired by uh, Frank Miller's comic book miniseries Batman Year One. And this is sort of Batman Year Two. It is not a sort of categorical departure when Nolan tried to do, but it sort of picks up a lot of the same ideas and the tone just a little farther down the road.
1: So let's join Batman where we find him at the beginning of this movie. The very first thing that we learn about him and this is something that maybe sets this movie apart from other Batman films as well, is that he starts off as a detective, almost, right? I mean, the first time we encounter him in this movie, it's a film noir kind of situation, really. There's a murder that's occurred in an apartment building that we witness in a sort of voyeuristic way through a rain-glazed window from afar. We're really looking at it from the point of view of the killer who is scoping out this person, right? And we'll learn later who that killer is. But a high-up official in the Gotham government is murdered in his apartment by a masked figure... And then we get this scene of Police Commissioner Gordon, a standard figure in the Batman movies here played by Jeffrey Wright, in the apartment solving the crime with Batman, which to me, maybe I don't, I'm not recalling all of my Batman from the past, but it doesn't seem like a way that you usually come across Batman as the gumshoe, right? I mean, there he is in full, he's not Bruce Wayne, he's full, you know, guy in a bat suit with a cape, and he's standing around looking at evidence in an apartment where somebody has been murdered and, and helping to solve the crime.
0: Right. I mean, Batman character started out in a series called Detective Comics, and that has a, an element that's really like, fallen away from the character very much in the movies, but this does bring us back a little bit to him. It is very invested in the mythos of the character, but it is also an extent to which this movie would play almost exactly the same, you know, barring certain action sequences, but the plot mechanics of it would play almost the same if Bruce Wayne were just a regular old detective and didn't happen to dress up in a cape and get shot at.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting choice in this movie that he is very often the person of Bruce Wayne. In other words, he's not doing anything super, but is doing things like, you know, looking at evidence in an apartment trying to solve a crime or talking to his butler Alfred later in his house. But yet he is doing it in full Batman costume. And although the movie never comes out and says this, I feel like that choice combined with the fact that Pattinson's Batman is. I think anyone watching this would agree is an unusually vulnerable Batman, right? He doesn't have the kind of tough exterior that the Christian Bale character or the Ben Affleck version of the character did. He's younger. He's a little more physically fragile, right? I mean, he's not quite as buff. All those things combined almost seem to suggest to me that he wears his mask and his cape as a defense against the world. You know that part of his neurosis, and in this movie, he is quite a neurotic character who seems to almost never step out without his his costume on. Um, that he's using it essentially as a as a form of psychological defense and protection.
0: Right. I mentioned that there are a lot of sort of little aspects of this movie that you like, and one of the ones one of those aspects is we don't see a ton of Robert Pattinson out of costume. There's not a lot of Bruce Wayne in this movie, but when we do. He, you know, has this sort of like floppy hair that's down on his face, this very sallow complexion and he doesn't put on the sort of macho Bruce Wayne voice that Ben Affleck and Christian Bale do. He's really like almost a little bit kind of whiny and vocal fryy as Bruce Wayne and he just seems like kind of a spoiled, you know, 20-something billionaire and not as if he's just Batman in a different kind of suit.
1: Yeah, there's a sense of his fragility and his brokenness, you know, every time you see him out of costume. And it's really to Pattinson's credit, I think, as an actor that what could be a very, I don't know, treacly way of presenting him, you know, as this fragile, traumatized character who hasn't recovered yet from his parents' murder, which at this point would be, you know, almost 20 years in the past. It's really to his credit that he made me kind of care about that. I really felt that there was a, an emotional trajectory for him to trace through the movie. Um, that was something more than, I've got to get revenge, you know, or I have to solve this crime. There really was a sense that he was searching for something and that that's part of what this first installment was about. All right, Sam, I think we should dig into this, um, this multi-villain-laden storyline because there's a lot of plot to get through in uh, The Batman. But first, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. If you enjoy the Slate Spoiler Special, the best way to support our show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. When you are a Slate Plus member, you get no ads on any Slate podcasts. You get unlimited reading on the Slate website, so you'll have access to every article, every advice column. You'll never hit a paywall. And you get bonus segments or episodes on many of our shows, like Slow Burn, The Political Gab Fest, or my own weekly show, The Slate Culture Gab Fest. And when you support the podcast, you're also supporting Slate. We would not be able to do the journalism that we do without your help. So to join today, go to Slate.com slash spoiler plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash spoiler plus.
0: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com
1: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch-ch-chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: All right, we're back. And having established... Who Bruce Wayne is in this version of Batman and how he's different from our Bruce Wayne's we've seen in the past. I think we need to start getting into the multiple villains in this movie. This is, I think, inarguably an overstuffed movie. It has at least three villains I can think of, depending on who you're going to count as a full villain. But I think that probably we should start with the murderer of the figure that we just described in the first scene, which is the Riddler. The Riddler, played by Paul Dano, who you don't see in full face until very close to the end of the movie, probably about 15, 20 minutes before the end. Up until then, he is mainly a masked figure in this very home-crafted mask made of duct tape, essentially, uh, who, almost Zodiac Killer style, leaves encrypted riddles alongside the people that he's going through the city um, and serially killing. Right.
0: And this Riddler uh, has an obsession with kind of Gotham's dark past when he kills the corrupt mayor at the beginning of the movie. Uh, He you know, swathes his head in duct tape and writes no more lies on it, and that becomes his motto. So he is getting into this whole sort of systemic corruption of Gotham. Because one of the themes of the movie is that Batman has been on the job for about two years, as we mentioned, and crime in Gotham has gotten worse during that time. It is not actually improving with this vigilante crime fighter on the street because Gotham's problems go much deeper than one guy going around breaking up the occasional mugging can handle. And this, eventually the Riddler's investigation or the facts that he is uncovering go all the way back to kind of the founding idea of Batman. We don't see his parents die in this movie, but we do deal, you know, with Bruce's parents. And in this version, at least the Riddler says, and then it's maybe a little ambiguous whether or not this is true, but that Bruce's mother, Martha Wayne, was sort of institutionalized uh, in order to get her out of the way. And his father was a corrupt politician who was on the take to these various uh, mob elements, including this kind of drug-dealing faction run by uh, John Turturro's Carmine Falcone. Uh, and that really throws into question exactly what it is that Bruce slash the Batman is fighting for.
1: Right. Although, if I understood correctly, there's somewhat of a walkback about his father's corruption, right? I mean, we can get to that later on in in, in some of the, the late scenes where John is laying out those revelations. But I think this movie plays it kind of in between, like new revelations come out about his parents that make his childhood less idyllic than he thought. But then later, it does actually come out that in fact, his father did not conspire to kill someone. He merely had a moment of weakness in sort of turning to a a bad guy for help to protect his family.
0: Right. It was more that he was sort of incompetent than like actually evil, but he sort of let the wrong, he agreed to let the wrong person handle his problems without asking enough questions about how that was going to be accomplished.
1: And I guess in talking about that, we should talk about who that was. And who some of these other villains are, since this movie really does. I mean, once one crime plot is solved, you know, there's just another one that pops up that still needs to be dealt with. So, in addition to Paul Dano's Riddler, who is not who, as you said, is obsessed with the corruption in Gotham City, and thus you know is not a part of that crime and corruption web. There's all these characters who are a part of the crime and corruption web who also have to be dealt with, and that would include, as you said, John Turturro's mobster character uh, who becomes really big in the Catwoman story. Another figure involved in organized crime, played by Colin Farrell, the Penguin, I guess, is his character villain name. But in, in this movie, he's mainly called Oswald Cobblepot, which is an excellent comic book name. Played by Colin Farrell in, you know, sort of Jared Leto in House of Gucci style, extreme prosthetic makeup. I guess this is going to be the new thing, is that handsome young actors play kind of, you know, portly older actors. I don't I don't know what it, it, it seems very unfair to the actual middle-aged bald man community, you know, that would like to get to play some parts themselves.
0: Yeah, let the character actors have their day.
1: Yeah, I, I honestly did not know that was Colin Farrell because I had avoided advanced coverage of the movie. I didn't know much about it going in, and not until the final credits did I actually realize how completely he had been transformed for that part. I mean,
0: I think if you told me Colin Farrell was in this movie and didn't tell me who he was playing, I would be watching it until the last five minutes, waiting for Colin Farrell to show up because he is that unrecognizable.
1: Yeah, and it struck me, and we'll get to this at the end, but there's a character who's teased as the villain in the next installment. Who I figured that must be who Colin Farrell is because you barely see that character, and um, yeah. I I never would have called it. So that's another one. Then there's the whole Peter Sarsgaard story, right? There's a a whole bit in the middle that's about Peter Sarsgaard's character, also a crooked politician. I think he's supposed to be the district attorney for the city, uh, who is more like a, a turncoat, you know, more sort of like a shady, cowardly character than somebody who's actively out there committing crimes. He's more kind of covering up for the higher ups. And anybody else to mention in the antagonist department?
0: Uh, not in the antagonist department. I guess you could go into like Selena Kyle and just how she is mixed up in this whole world too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of a question with Catwoman: if is Catwoman an anti-heroine or a heroine, right? And throughout the history of the franchise, she's been a little bit of both. But yeah, she's she's Selena Kyle's an interesting character in this scenario because she seems so much more worldly wise than Batman is, you know. And there's a, there's a romance between the two of them that develops later on, but their initial contact is essentially. her... Her kind of trying to get him to to use some of her own dirty tactics, you know, to, to fight the bad guys. She, unlike him, I think is less interested in, you know, doing things on the up and up. Put it that way. She herself uh, has some underworld connections. She works at the nightclub owned by Oswald Cobblepot, the Colin Farrell bad guy. And it's sort of implied that maybe she's a sex worker. I mean, she's this kind of a bottle service girl at the club who seems to have sexual objectification as part of the job. But that's never, since it's a PG-13 movie, never... Never completely spelled out in that way,
0: right? And one of the one of the themes that kind of runs through this movie is that Batman, for all the time that he spent sort of hanging out in alleyways and punching people, doesn't really understand how Gotham works. And the movie makes it explicit, um, among other things. There's a scene on um, a sort of you know, half-built skyscraper where Batman and Catwoman like to meet up. And she, of course, does not know who Batman really is, but she goes on this kind of rant about white privileged assholes. And then in response to something Batman says, says, well, you know, I can tell that you grew up with money. So, you know, she knows that he just, because he's had this weirdly protected offspring, even though he goes out into the streets and, you know, fights people hand to hand, he still hasn't really come face to face with how corrupt the city is, how many of the people who are supposed to be you know, trustworthy and morally upright are actually completely on the take. And this the movie is sort of about him learning about how the world really works.
1: Yeah. And that again is something really different than I think we've seen in past Batman that he's a little bit of a naive kind of wandering through the world needing to be educated about evil. So that again contributes to this almost Spider Man side of his character. He's a little bit more like a boy who needs to grow up. And you know, maybe for some people that seems so out of keeping with what they expect from this property and that archetypal character that they won't like it. But to me, it for the first time gave me something to to grab onto in a character that I've always found kind of alienating.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we've had, I actually don't know if he's the youngest person to play the character, but he's this is certainly kind of the youngest conception of Batman that I think we've seen. On the screen, we've had a lot of sort of grizzled, you know, middle-aged, worldly-wise men playing the character, and I don't think we've had someone who's kind of closer to an angsty teen in this version. I think uh, Matt Reeves, who directed and co-wrote this, said one of his inspirations for the character was... Kurt Cobain, and then especially kind of the the version of him played by Michael Pitt in the Gus Van Zandt movie Lost Days, which was basically just him kind of wandering around in a daze for an hour and a half. And um, they actually use Nirvana something in the way uh, quite prominently in the film. But it is that kind of glowering, angsty, I know everything is wrong with the world, but I don't know what to do about it place that the character's in right now.
1: I'm glad you mentioned something in the way, because I think the music and the use of music is one of my favorite things in this movie, even though it's extremely simple, simple to the point of there are basically two to three motifs that are repeated over and over and over. One is something in, in the way, which I think we hear in its entirety a couple times, you know, to a montage of him brutally moving through the city. Uh, so that's kind of his song. Then Catwoman has her own theme, which is really beautiful. I can't call it to mind right now or I would hum it for you, but it was haunting me throughout the movie. She has a really great motif, And then there's a classical It's Schubert's for Ave Maria, the very familiar Ave Maria. I think, you know, if people think of Ave Maria... This is the one that they will think of, right? This very romantic version of the prayer, which Michael Giacchino, the film's composer, adapts into this sort of twisted minor key score that's super, super effective. I love the music in this movie.
0: And if you make it all the way to the end of the movie, you will actually hear Paul Dano um, give his own little vocal rendition of Ave Maria as
1: well. Yeah, he actually bursts into a little solo vocalization of it. All right, since we talked about the soundscape just now a little bit, let's talk about the visual landscape of this movie. I think another reason that I was able to enjoy this movie and, and get into it despite the three hour running time and the fact that ultimately I'm not really that interested in the Batman story is is because it looked really fantastic. And I've seen a lot of uh, critics writing about this, that it just, it looked like a movie, you know, it wasn't one of those muddily lit, flatly shot, Marvel style, you know, here are some superheroes standing in a line kind of movies. There was some actual mise-en-scene and some visual style. So maybe we could talk about that a bit. For one thing, just the design of Gotham City, which is quite different than what we have seen, for example, in Christopher Nolan's trilogy.
0: Right. I mean, it's a very dark sort of black on black world it, that maybe was shot by Greg Fraser, who also shot uh, Dune last year. And if you see it properly projected, which I hope you will in a theater, all those sort of gradations will come out. I've seen some concern already that some people are just going to see like a sort of dim black blob. Hopefully you, dear listener, if you get to see this, will not see that. But yeah, it's a very... Dark World, which is certainly not new, but it's one thing that's interesting for me is that this is very visibly like a kind of New York-y Gotham, which is not always the case. Chris Nolan's Gotham was famously sort of more Chicago-esque. This one has sort of subway signage. There's a, a place called Gotham Square Garden where the final set piece takes place. And it very much is drawing on that kind of 70s, early 80s cycle of movies about New York City basically being a kind of urban crime ridden shithole, um, which has kind of, you know, come back into the political discourse in the last few years because it's such a benchmark of the way Donald Trump and his followers see the world. But the movie is sort of interesting things to do it rather than just kind of rubber stamping that idea that the world is a crime-ridden cesspool. It is more looking at the root causes of that, which actually don't have to do with kind of the urban underclass and has much more to do with the basically the rich white people who run the world.
1: Right. Those references to the New York of 70s movies are even present in the in the voiceover, which I didn't think 100% worked, but there's an almost taxi driver style voiceover from Pattinson himself. It only comes in, I think, at the very beginning and at the very end, which is good. I mean, as, as the less the better with most voiceovers, but it clearly is a, a taxi driver influenced style voiceover. I think he even says something early on like, in the last two years, I've become a nocturnal animal. You know, he's talking about his own relationship to the night and prowling the night in Gotham. And it really is a moment that to me was um, was probably citing those exact gritty 70s New York thrillers you're talking about.
0: Yeah, he says at one point, something like, they think I hide in the shadows, but I am the shadows. Um, and if you put that line right into Taxi Driver, I don't think anyone would find it amiss.
1: Yeah. And that that is some of the weaker writing in the movie. I think it didn't really need to rely on those voiceovers, but I appreciate the world that it's trying to create. And actually, when you were talking about this looking like a dim black blob, I mean, I suppose perhaps it would if you were seeing it on a small screen, but I was sort of impressed at how much use of color and texture there was in this image. I mean, as I was saying before, contrasting it to those kinds of muddly lit movies that don't have any particular color palette, this isn't just uh, dark, dark, dark all the time. There's some really beautiful kind of Hopper-esque tableaus you know of the neon lit night of Gotham it felt like a like a real place to me that had been fully imagined by the production designer, the cinematographer, the director, and I appreciated that.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of red in it too, as well as black. I suppose that's only fair to note.
1: Of course, when you're talking about a three hour long superhero movie, there's going to be a lot of extended action sequences. Some of those in this movie worked and some of them didn't. And I wanted to hear what you thought, in particular about a couple of them. The car chase is one because I know that, you know, that's sort of the test of an action director in some way. Can you film an interesting car chase where people can follow the action and who's doing what to whom, and keep it suspenseful and not just make it a cacophony of exploding cars. I don't think that Matt Reeves really pulled that off. And there's a really extended car chase, you know, that looks very expensive and certainly has a lot of spectacular... Uh, I guess you'd call them stunts, like crashes in it, but struck me as one of the dumber car chases I've seen in recent action movies, in part just because something that happens in almost every movie car chase for a moment happens the entire time in this car chase, which is that they're driving the wrong way on a highway, right? And to me, after a certain point, that is just such a dumb choice to make and one with such a high body count and such little regard for human life that... I had trouble getting behind, you know, this car chase where the penguin, it's the penguin being chased by the Batman, right? They're going the wrong way down a highway. There's multiple pileups behind them and walls of fire that their car leaping through, et cetera. But it was one of those scenes where it seemed to me like, I could have done with it being 10 minutes shorter and having three or four different ideas and directions and uses of the laws of physics besides, you know, let's careen headlong into traffic for five straight minutes.
0: Yeah, I definitely don't think he's reinventing the car chase here. And there are parts of it that just struck me as very weirdly shot where he's kind of just um, cutting between interiors of the two cars. This is right after the introduction of the Batmobile in the movie where he is chasing uh, Colin Farrell's penguin in his car. And... There's a lot of cutting back and forth between interiors where I'm just like, where are these two cars now in relation to each other? But also, you know, especially because I've never stopped thinking of the Chris Nolan movies while watching this. I will say that I do think Matt Reeves is at the very least a much better action director than Christopher Nolan is. Um, Those movies spawned an essay in the pages of Slate.com by Dennis Lim about chaos cinema, which is just about Christopher Nolan's sort of inability to slash disinterest in cutting together action in a way that's spatially coherent. And Matt Reeves, who did the last two Planet of the Apes movies and uh, Let Me In, is, I think, at least better than that. I mean, you can sort of tell, you know, where that tractor trailer is flipping over and how the car is slipping underneath it and whatever else. But they're not, these are not sort of particularly original glosses on on that whole idea. It's basic, it's well executed, but I, I don't think... As with a lot of the rest of the movie, they're not, there's not a lot of kind of new stuff going on in there.
1: Wait, I will stand up for one great Chris Nolan car moment, which is that incredible practical stunt of the flipping truck. I forget if that's in The Dark Knight Rises or, or which one it's in, but that's a beautiful moment. I guess you wouldn't quite call that a chase. It's just one individual car stunt, but there aren't many flipping trucks that I remember for a decade, <laughs> and that is definitely one of them. Okay, the other action sequence I'll quickly ask you about is the Gotham Square Garden scene, which I think of as the movie's third time. Last ending. This is one of those way too long movies that has way too many endings. And one that came at a point in the movie when I was really kind of done already with the movie was this big flooding of Gotham Square Garden scene, which to understand the background of, we should say there's a mayoral race that's happening in the background of this whole movie where, you know, a young sort of AOC style female candidate. Is running against a much more establishment figure. So this is the scene where she, in fact, has just won the election, right? The results are being announced at Gotham Square Garden when there's a big emergency that Batman has to deal with.
0: Yeah, it's not clear to me who she's running against at that point, since her main opponent is murdered in the first scene of the movie. Oh, yeah, you're um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, hooray, she won. Yeah, this is, I mean, there are a lot of ideas that come together in this sequence. Um, One of them that Sort of like at the end of Joker where he's taken into custody and that sort of spawns all these imitation Jokers to take his place. Um, The same thing happens with the Riddler, too. He is sort of amass this whole online army through it basically is this world's equivalent of a 4chan forum. And they are all converging on the victory rally for this uh, mayor character whose name is Bella Real. Very subtly, her campaign slogan is Real Change. So this is kind of the dawning of a new day for Gotham, but all these imitation Riddlers are converging on Gotham Square Garden to basically just massacre people from the catwalks up above. They've all kind of brought their rifles and they're going to shoot people down. And you know, this is a a big loud sort of, you know, almost like parallax view style um, climax to this thing. And and the action part of it is a little underwhelming, but this is a part where I found the ideas at play to be more interesting than the action itself. This is for me where the movie really comes alive and starts dealing with some pretty interesting things. And I think I, I liked The sequence for that more than uh, because things blow it up in interesting ways.
1: Well, what were the ideas it was pursuing? Because to me, the weakness of that Gotham Square Garden scene is that the antagonists, as you say, are these faceless message board guys who show up, you know, dressed as the Riddler because they've gotten incited by him on this sort of incel style message board but they're faceless nobodies. So it's just, it's hard to care about them in any way other than sort of, you know, video game soldiers who need to be vanquished one by one.
0: Right, but just for me, I guess what's significant is the fact that they exist. You know, the fact that you can take down the Riddler and this army of copycats who are not any less good at killing people will spring up in his place. Um, and there's kind of a button here. I think maybe the first time we see Batman in action, um, just rescuing a guy from some, this kind of Warriors-esque street gang. One of the muggers says, you know, who are you? And he says, I'm Vengeance. Um, and that's just sort of a cookie cutter, like, oh, here's the Batman movie, He's doing their Batman thing again. But at the end of the movie, it's brought back, and Batman asks one of these faux Riddlers, who are you? And they say the same thing, I'm Vengeance. And it's this idea that, you know, Batman who has not managed to bring crime down in Gotham, despite two years of of swinging around and punching people, instead of that has actually given rise to this whole empowered vigilante class who can be marshaled online and, you know, think themselves no less right or less just than he is, but have, you know, come together to be this kind of monstrous and kind of vaguely... And not explicitly, but very vaguely, you know, white supremacist coded militia taking over the city and trying to stop this black woman from being elected mayor. And that just kind of actually makes it feel like this movie exists in and is connected to our world in a way that very many of these... You know, IP driven comic book movies of late do not.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought of that scene as being a, a kind of allegory for white supremacy being stirred up online, but that does make it more interesting. And certainly psychologically for the Batman character, it's interesting that something he uttered earlier in the movie, "I am vengeance," has been turned around and sort of appropriated by these unsavory figures, right? And and in fact, you're right that by the end of that Gotham Square Garden sequence, we see a different side of the Batman emerging, where he's you know, helping people out of this area where they're sort of trapped in the flooding Madison Square Garden, he becomes more of a kind of humanitarian figure right there, right? A do-gooder and less than a a vigilante. All right, Sam, I'm going to put another peg in this for just a moment while we hear from our sponsor, and then we'll get back and talk about the movie's other multiple endings. All right. Back to the world of the Batman. We are now pretty close to the end of the movie. I wonder if you agree with me that this movie has multiple places where you said, I wish it had ended there, and what your favorite one was. Where do you think that this movie would best have put a pin in it and gone to the credits?
0: I'm trying to think how many there are. I mean, there is the sequence we were just talking about, the big sort of Gotham Square Garden set piece. There is... Which I think is the proper ending to the movie before you get to the kind of post-credity tag.
1: Well, no, because then there's the romantic goodbye. There's the romantic goodbye after that. I mean, I just, all I know is that I kept having this feeling of, well, that seems like a last shot. Look, someone's riding into a sunset after having vanquished bad guys, but it is not yet the ending. And it became kind of absurd by the end. I think honestly that I would have preferred for the movie to just end after we learn who the Riddler is and the Riddler encounters, you know, there's a kind of a teaser moment where the Riddler has been taken captive at the end, right? We see Paul Dano in full face for the first time. It's that moment when, as you mentioned, he sings Schubert's Ave Maria. It's the moment when he realizes, peering out of his jail window, that, you know, his plan has gone awry and he's not going to be able to take the city as he had planned. He's planted all these bombs around the city. It's because of him the Gotham Square Garden flooded. But watching him, you know, experience defeat and kind of sink down sobbing. And then he has this little communication through his jail cell wall with the guy in the next cell this is the person that at the time I was watching, I thought that must be who Colin Farrell is. But in fact, since this is a spoiler special, we should probably spoil who he is and who he's playing, right? In fact, it's Barry Keown, who you may not think you know who he is, but you do. He is—he was just in the Eternals movie. Um, he was also in The Green Knight last year in a really remarkable role, I think. Barry Keown is suddenly everywhere, and I think is going to be even more everywhere in the near future.
0: Right. Well, he technically, he is playing Unseen Arkham Prisoner, as how it's Listed in the credits, he's clearly the Joker. um, And they're clearly setting this up for future movies. You know, I did know who Colin Farrell was playing in this movie, but the the, the end credits role and the last name in the credits is Barry Keegan. And I just looked to the person I was sitting next to and we were like, who is is Barry Keegan? Keegan in this movie, like, how did I miss him? And then you realize, and he's and he's doing an accent in the last thing, too, so you don't even recognize the voice. You do maybe recognize that incredibly creepy tone that he is maybe the best actor on the planet at doing right now. He is just, like, the creepiest thing on two legs at the moment. So he's perfect casting for this role, hopefully, um, if we get to see him in then I guess, if they make another, uh, another one of these Pattison Batman movies. But yeah, so that is the tag for whatever the next entry in the series is, although there's also a couple spin-off TV series, including an origin story for Colin Farrell's Penguin that might be coming up. It's all, there's a whole web of IP laid out in front uh, at the quote unquote ending of this movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I suppose that I should be rolling my eyes cynically at that, but I admit, I don't really care about the HBO Max Penguin show, but I do kind of care about the next iteration of this Batman. I would watch the next thing he does with some interest and some pleasure.
0: You know, we've seen before with the Planet of the Apes movies that, you know, Matt Reeves is very good at sort of mining meaning out of series that really seem to have outlived their usefulness. And I think this movie feels in a way like it's just getting started on that process. But even though I don't love it, it does make me curious to see what these people will do with it next time,
1: yeah, I agree. It's not quite as strong as the Planet of the Apes movies, of which he made the second two in the trilogy. What I appreciate about those movies in part is their compactness, which you could never accuse this movie of having. <laughs> you know, it's it's certainly bloated by any standard. But yet there's something about it that makes me feel like they might be able to find a little bit of new life in this way, way worn to the bone comic book property.
0: And we also, I I guess we haven't sort of mentioned this in the natural course of things, but we should also mention that Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz are just like super hot together. This is not... They don't get to you know do it in this movie. They only get like one kiss on a rooftop, but there's just incredible chemistry between them. And if, you, if you've seen any like red carpet photo shoot between them, it appears to be going on well after the film has finished. They're still able to turn it on, but they are, they're a really good pair. And they are probably my favorite thing about this movie is just watching the two of them square off against each other.
1: It's true. They kind of smolder. And part of the reason they smolder is that you know, they have a real relationship. Their relationship changes, right? There's some sparks between them, but there's also some kind of rough scenes between them. She, as I mentioned earlier, is a much tougher kind of character than he is and is sort of always trying to incite him to do more than he he actually wants to do, right? It seems like her role in this movie is often to try to get him off of his brooding rooftop and get him out into the streets kind of brawling. Even at the end of the movie, there's a moment where she says, let's go off together and fight crime, you know, and he refuses because he's got to stay and Gotham City and brood and fight crime there Um, but she has more of a life than you know the, the female love interest often gets in this kind of superhero movie and you get the feeling that they're both speeding off on their cool motorcycles to do interesting things at the end I also hope that she's not out of the franchise for the next one all right well whatever happens next with this franchise Sam I hope you will come back and talk to me about the Batman the the other Batman the next Batman I
0: would be the delighted to
1: And that's it for this Spoiler Special. Please subscribe to our show in the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like it, please rate it and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil in the future or other feedback to share, send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today was Jasmine Ellis. Our senior managing producer is June Thomas. For Sam Adams, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.